We embark on a new series of studies from uh, the Peter's epistle, first epistle, and uh, we heard the uh, overview uh, from last week's sermon. So if you missed it, uh, you can check out our YouTube channel or our audio podcast and have a listen. Now the sermon today will be taken from chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 12. Now when I was young, I could not empathize with the elderly who complain of their pains. Doctors, they call it LZD, short for Long Zong Tian. Back aches, muscle aches, joint pains. I've always thought that Tylenol is the answer to aches. That is what the TV ads would tell me. I've always believed that there's relief available for pain. Until, until I got older myself, and had my own back pain. I realized that painkillers, they can only do so much. And for the very first time, I've heard the words pain management. Pain management means that pain will be prolonged, that the pain is here to stay. And one must now learn how to manage the pain. And one common pain management technique is distraction. That is, shifting your attention or your focus away from pain. Techniques like deep breathing, listening to music, or even counting. They are distractions to shift one's attention and focus away from pain. Now, many of us do not, may not do a lot of deep breathing and counting, and yet we distract ourselves regularly. When we are upset, we go for a run. Distraction. When we are discouraged, we get a scoop of ice cream. When we are feeling blue, we go shopping. Distractions. To divert our minds from life's pains. Now, the letter of 1 Peter was written to believers whose lives are full of pain. They are suffering opposition, maltreatment, bullying, persecution, because they believed in Jesus. The pains they were going through would not go away soon. It was rather here to stay. And so they needed to be taught how to respond to suffering. They needed to know how to manage their pain. They needed a distraction. So in today's passage, Peter tells them, to focus on their inheritance so that they can rejoice amidst their suffering. So he writes, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. When we go through difficulties, focusing our minds on the final picture, enables us to endure. So a patient 
who looks forward to restored health can rejoice. He can endure while going through a battery of painful treatments. A builder who refers to the picture of the finished work will smile and will press on with the hard work. A migrant worker who sets his goal in going home, seeing his children graduating from school, he can endure more for now, the heat of the day, or the scolding of the foreman. Peter tells believers to focus on their living hope, their inheritance, and that will help them rejoice amidst their present suffering. And what is this hope of receiving the inheritance? Well, the term inheritance in the Bible connotes the idea of the promised land that God has promised to his people, the land where they will finally enjoy rest. Inheritance also carries the idea of a reward that God has in store for his people. But Peter helpfully sums it up for us with the word salvation. Salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says in verse 9, it is what he calls to, quote, the gracious gift of life, end of quote, in chapter 3, verse 7. Inheritance, in other words, is salvation. It is life eternal. It is God having us and we having him. And this inheritance commences rest. It brings to an end suffering. When believers distract themselves from life's pains and sufferings by shifting their attention to the promised inheritance, they can rejoice. They can endure. And this is also the reason why Peter calls believers strangers, exiles, in verse 1. Now, we all know what, uh, what it's like living in a foreign land. Most of us know that. In a foreign land, one does not enjoy the same perks as the locals. One is not treated the same as the locals. And whenever we face opposition, difficulty, or trouble in a foreign land, what do we do? We long to get back home. Those are the experiences of exiles, of sojourners. We are, Peter says, exiles and strangers in this world. We are not citizens of this world. And so we should not expect to be treated well. On the contrary, we should expect to be mistreated. That is why we need some good distraction. Shift our attention to home, to our inheritance. So if you were to ask your domestic helpers, if you have domestic helpers, if you ask them if they would like to stay with you for life, some of them may say, why not? But most will say, no thanks. It's not because you mistreated them, prayerfully not, but it's because they are sojourners. They are homesick people who have set their hopes and dreams in another land. And they long to go back soon to that land they call home. 
And so in the meantime, they would tell you, the Filipino domestic helpers, they would tell you in Tagalog, tiis tiis lang, which means endure, just endure. Think of our inheritance, Peter says, and that is a good distraction from present sufferings as strangers and exiles. Now, what else does Peter say about this inheritance? He gives assurance of the certainty of this inheritance. It is, he says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, it is not subjected to decay. There's no expiration date. It is unchanging. And when we speak of earthly inheritance, we cannot describe it to be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. An inheritance will to you. You know what happens? It can get modified by a sibling if he competes with you for the inheritance. It can be unknowingly sold or mortgage. And the value of an earthly inheritance is determined by market demands. Earthly inheritances, they are unstable. Not so with God's inheritance for his children. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now Peter also says it is kept in heaven for you which means it is safe. It is safe. It will not go missing. You know, a title deed on earth, you may keep it in a safety deposit box, yet it does not mean it's safe. So did you read of, uh, in the news of a Hong Kong bank, was it DBS, who accidentally junked safety deposit boxes by mistake during a renovation. Safekeeping of inheritances on earth is never fail-safe, but God's inheritance for us is heaven-safe. No one can snatch it. And get this, in addition to the surety of the inheritance itself, Peter says there is assurance that God's child will receive it. God's child, Peter says, is shielded, guarded by God's power. You can call it, tongue-in-cheek, divine shield. Never should you be afraid that something is going to happen to you that you fall short in getting your inheritance. Peter's assurance must have been a comfort to believers who could be suffering under Emperor Nero or Emperor Domitian. They were persecuted under those possible two emperors. Their properties confiscated, their lives taken. Such things could happen in this world, but not in heaven. What is yours is kept safe, and God will keep you safe by his power and ensure that you receive his inheritance. When we focus on the sure inheritance, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering because our inheritance is secured by God. It is kept in, 
kept safe in heaven, and we are protected by God's power to ensure that we receive it in the end. So our commentator by the name of Edmund Clowney, he aptly puts it. He says, inheritance is kept for us, and we are kept for it too. Can any insurance company beat that? Now Peter has more to say about this inheritance. Next slide. In verses uh, 1 to 3, he says, It is planned by God. So uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he reads, uh, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter describes believers to be God's elect. They are God's chosen, foreknown by God the Father, made holy by the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ, whose blood covered for their sins. Now notice that all persons of the Godhood are involved in the salvation of God's people. Now, how is this truth helpful to the suffering believer? Well, sometimes when we face opposition, or sometimes when things turn out bad for us, we tend to doubt, did I make the right choice? Was it a correct decision? Now, I may have told you this before. I had a Bible school classmate. Upon graduation, she decided to serve as a missionary in Kenya. And on her first day in Nairobi, she was robbed at gunpoint in an internet cafe. The gunman kept shouting at her, pointing a gun to her head, even after she gave everything she had to him. And at that instant, in that instant, she thought to herself, did I make the right choice to come to Kenya? Was it a correct decision in following the Lord? Well, she would, after that unfortunate day, she would stay on for many years to serve in an orphanage for children dying from AIDS. Why? Because that one unfortunate incident of obeying Jesus' call was not out of God's divine plan. Troubles, suffering, they do not discredit one's inheritance, one's salvation unto obedience to Jesus. Because according to Peter, it was planned by God. It was God who chose us as part of his plan. So Jesus himself testified and he says to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. We cannot choose to be heirs. On the contrary, heirs are appointed. And we, in God's great mercy and abundant grace, 
are in God's will and plan. He chose us to be heirs. And when we ponder upon that, we can rejoice in the midst of suffering because our inheritance is secured because it was planned by God. Now, how was this, how was this inheritance, uh, this salvation conferred to us? Peter tells us that God caused us to be born again, to be born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection. This inheritance is endowed to us via our new birth because only children can become legitimate heirs. Only children of God can become his heirs. And we have been made God's children through our new birth in Christ. Happened on the day we repented of our sins. Happened on the day we gave our lives to Jesus' rule. You see, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. God made us alive, however, through Jesus' resurrection. He died for our sins. We died with him. He was raised to life, and we were raised with him to new life. And our being born again made us God's children. It made us co-heirs with God's Son, Jesus. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So that is one more reason to rejoice despite suffering. Our inheritance is secure. It is given to us by our new birth in Jesus Christ. And our new birth instantly makes us God's children. And it makes us His heirs too. Believers can rejoice in the midst of suffering because of our sure inheritance. This is planned by God. This is conferred to us by our new birth. This is secured by God and we are kept by him to receive it. Yet the question remains as to why do God's children suffer? Peter explains, These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is telling us that suffering confirms that we are heirs of this promised inheritance. Peter tells us because suffering authenticates our faith. So the apostle tells us in chapter 2, verse 21, to this, and he refers to unjust suffering, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, my friends, following the Lord Jesus is an invitation 
to suffering because the Lord Jesus suffered at the hands of wicked men. Peter himself experienced suffering for the Lord's sake. So the book of Acts recorded for us that along with the other apostles, Peter, he was flogged for preaching Christ. Yet they rejoiced. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for the name of Christ. And so Peter rejoiced in participating in the sufferings of Christ. So friends, suffering's role is to authenticate our faith. See, in obeying Jesus, we suffer because our Lord suffered in obedience to the Father. Our response to, to suffering confirms our faith. So Peter responds, Peter's response to suffering is rejoicing. And he calls for us to do likewise. Now, in other parts of his letter, he urges godly responses to suffering, submitting to authorities, respect, respecting harsh masters, to bless even when you are insulted, and to persevere in doing good works. Suffering's role is to confirm our faith. Not only that, suffering somehow refines our faith. So we read that Peter likens or he contrasts our faith to gold. Perishable gold passes through fire to remove impurities, so it comes out more gold. Could Peter mean the same with our faith that goes through the fires of suffering? You see, other parts of Scripture seem to support this. So the writer of Hebrews views suffering as discipline from God, from God the loving Father who loves his children. And the writer says that this discipline produces a harvest of righteousness in God's plan. And we all know that when God disciplines us, he refines us. He purifies us. Pride is sifted out. Sin is called out. And in the end, we come out broken. We come out humbled. We come out more gold. Suffering confirms our faith. It solicits a response. It does some purifying work. So consider Job in the Old Testament. Job, the classic example, after not a double whammy, but a quadruple whammy of losing camels, donkeys, sheep, servants, his sons and daughters, and finally his health. Job's wife, she urged him to end his suffering through suicide, that is, to curse God and die. And how did Job respond to his suffering? How did Job respond to his wife? He replied to his wife and he said, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And we read that Job 
held on to God. He would say in chapter 19, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall see him. So his response to suffering confirms his faith. And then when suffering lingered longer, it led him to demand an explanation from God and to repent from it in the end. Job says in the end, chapter 42, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Suffering confirms Job's faith. It also refines his faith. The psalmists, we read that they cry out to God in their suffering. And their cries testified of their faith and trust in the Lord. So one psalmist by the name of Asaph, he admitted that his cries and behavior were unbecoming. He said, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. But in the end, he says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me in to glory. So suffering confirms our faith, be it through our response to trust, our response to rejoice, or our response to repent, because it shows that we believe and we love the God whom we have yet to see face to face. Peter says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. One more thing that Peter says about this inheritance. It is looked forward, looked forward to by prophets and angels. So he says in verse 10 to 12, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Peter says that this inheritance was highly anticipated by prophets, by angels. That means that they could not wait to see it finally unfolded. So the Gospel of Luke records for us uh, the praises the praises angels declared when Jesus was born. They declared and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. It's the song that we hear every Christmas. 
Now, if we couldn't wait for Christmas to come each year, imagine the angels wait for God to finally unveil His salvation plan through the Savior, His Son. Luke also records for us two prophets, Simeon and Anna. It was revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would live to see Christ, to see the Christ. And Simeon did. And when he finally saw him, he was so comforted that he prayed to die finally in peace because God's peacemaker has finally arrived. So Simeon prayed to the Lord and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon did prophesy too that the suffering, uh, the suffering and rejection of this Savior. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword, he now tells Mary, will pierce your own soul too. Another prophet by the name of Anna came to give thanks for God's gift of the Savior. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So one can imagine her telling the rest, this is the Redeemer, this is the Redeemer, finally. Now this inheritance was also referred to by many other prophets. We read of Isaiah when he prophesied uh, that the virgin will be with child and will be called Emmanuel. Micah also spoke of it when he spoke of a ruler from Bethlehem who shall shepherd his people Israel. Many anticipated and looked forward to this inheritance, this salvation, now unveiled, now conferred to us who believe in Jesus. I think Peter is telling us, see, see how privileged we all are. Prophets, they only spoke about it in, if I may, low resolution. But we get to hear it preached to us in high resolution. We hear Christ preached to us in God's good time. We have believed in Him. And so we have this living hope. So what have we learned about this salvation, this inheritance? Well, it's planned by God, given to us by new birth, secured in heaven, confirmed by sufferings, looked forward to by prophets and angels. So when life's troubles and sufferings throw their weight on us, here is a good distraction to focus on the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept for us 
And may our distraction lead us to rejoice. Now in closing, perhaps some of us may ask, is Peter's call to rejoice amidst suffering applicable only to suffering as a result of our obedience to Christ? What about suffering as part and parcel of living in a fallen world? Say, what about the Christians suffering from sickness or from tragedy? Is Peter's call to rejoice amidst troubles and suffering a call to the mother who lost her child from a fall? Is this an exhortation to parents with children needing lifelong special care? Well, my feeble attempt to answer that question is Job's response to his suffering. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You see, accepting what God gives us and what he withholds from us, that acceptance is an act of obedience to God's mysterious will for our lives. And such acceptance may come with troubles and suffering. And we have here the exhortation to rejoice amidst trials because of our sure inheritance that God is keeping for us and at the same time keeping us for and so may this be our focus, our distraction amidst life's pains and suffering. Now, before we sing the closing song together, let me uh, share my playlist, and you will see a QR code flash before you. Reason behind this playlist is because songs are a good distraction to life's pains. They remind us of our hope in Christ, the reality of heaven, the certainty of salvation realized at Jesus' return. Have a good listen and have a good distraction. <laughs> 